Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben here. Welcome to episode 388 of the podcast. It's October 14th, 2020. My guest today is my old friend, Michael Lombard. I, I first met Michael at least 12 years ago when we both lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and when Michael first moved over into healthcare work. He has since served as a lean facilitator and coach in numerous healthcare organizations, and he's been a hospital CEO in Louisiana before he left and took his current role, which is, again, once again, focusing more deeply on process improvement at Kaiser Permanente in California. So Michael's doing a unique and I think groundbreaking keynote talk at the upcoming AME Virtual Conference. That's the Association for Manufacturing Excellence, their annual conference uh, is being held October 27th to 29th. So his session, which Michael invited me to moderate, is called Striving Together in a Crisis, How Improvement Science Can Build Resiliency in a Crisis and Perhaps Even Progress Complex Social Issues. So these crises include COVID-19, California wildfires, and social injustice and unrest. So Michael will be incorporating videos uh, from two physicians that he works with, Dr. Rita Ng and Dr. Carla Wick, and they'll both be participating in the Q&A for what's described as a conversation-style keynote. So our podcast today is uh, somewhat of a preview of this session, but Michael and I will also talk about how and why he got into healthcare and why the Toyota Kata methodology is so important to him. So if you'd like to learn more about the conference and get a link um, to the registration, you can find all of that and more in the show notes at leanblog.org slash 388. We're joined today by Michael Lombard, and I'll introduce him a little bit more in a second. I can't believe this is your first time on the podcast, Michael. I know, I know, but it's an honor to be here with you, Mark. Appreciate it. Well, thanks. And, you know, I, I had to go back and look, we've collaborated on different things, webinars, and we've known each other uh, a long time. So um, I'm, I'm glad we could do the podcast here today for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, Michael right now is the managing director for the East Bay service area of Kaiser Permanente. And you know, I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit about your, you know, uh, back then was transitioned into healthcare and the different types of leadership roles you've had. And then we're also going to give a preview for uh, a keynote talk that uh, Michael has put together. It's, it's, it's going to be a team effort, as you'll hear us discuss. But we do want to mention the AME virtual conference. So it's been converted to a completely virtual format this year, AME being the Association for Manufacturing Excellence, even though there's a lot of, you know, there's always a lot of healthcare attendees. Uh, but that event is going to be October 27th to 29th this year. I'll put registration links in the show notes. And, and Michael's session um, is going to be on uh, Wednesday, October um, 28th. So we'll, we'll come back and, and talk about that a little bit. And I, and I believe the amazing Dr. Toussaint is going to be uh, presenting at the conference too. So that right there is worth the price, price of admission. Yeah. John Toussaint, uh, a frequent guest on the podcast. And, and, and Michael, we'll, 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 I'm sure eventually we'll, we'll get you into that category. There's, there's sort of like, <laughs> there's a five timers club, like hosting Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I'm up for it, man. Let's do it. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't send out a blazer, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good. Um, so you know, Michael and I know each other going back to um, days in, in the Dallas Fort Worth area when uh, before Michael got into healthcare. And so maybe you know, first question for you, you know, how and why did you um, kind of shift directions in your career um, to get involved in healthcare? Yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up um, in Central Florida. My pops was in the construction business. I grew up in the construction business. And um, from the age of 10 years old, I was working on a roofing crew in the summers. And then uh, after college, went to work for a national home builder that had a really strong QI quality improvement program because they were partially site built, partially factory built. So they had a kind of an industrial component to their business. And uh, you know, heard about something called Lean, and started getting trained up on that. Loved it. Just fell in love with continuous improvement, improvement science, and ended up uh, connecting with you through some blogging that we were doing, and uh, ended up in uh, Dallas where you were living at the time. And uh, you know, uh, the housing market took a, a plunge, and you know, in the 08 recession, and 
Um, I was definitely starting to think about what the future may hold. And um, I had never considered healthcare. And you as a great mentor said, hey, you know, you should maybe think about it. Uh, There might be an opportunity for you to apply some of what you're learning with lean and healthcare and uh, made made some connections. I think we had a a cool uh, pizza party in your backyard where you were making the pizzas with your, Mm -hmm. uh, with your pizza oven. And uh, and I actually met somebody from children's medical center and um, I fell in love, you know, the first time I went and just visited for a site visit, Uh, I brought back all of my childhood kind of memories of my brother who has cerebral palsy, which was a result of a a medical error during uh, childbirth. Um, It brought back all the memories of spending time with him at the Shriners hospital in Tampa all throughout my childhood and how, uh, I guess subconsciously, maybe I really wanted to be in healthcare and just never had <laughs> brought it to the forefront of my consciousness. So kind of, uh, oh, a little bit of a debt of gratitude to you for that, Mark, for helping me along the way there. So that's how I got into healthcare in 2010. Yeah. So a decade in healthcare and, you know, it's been um, really exciting to see the different roles that that you've taken in different organizations. And, you know, I feel like now uh, the tables have turned. I'm going to ask you to mentor me. And I mean that seriously, because you've moved up into different leadership roles that, um, you know, I would, um, I don't, you know, I haven't had the opportunity, you know, I've been outside consultants, you know, it's different, different path, but, um, my, my point being, you know, it's, it's been great to see you um, move out of process improvement circles into some direct leadership roles. I was wondering if you could share what a couple of those roles were and, and what it was like, um, you know, kind of shifting into direct line leadership, if you will. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I guess it was uh, right around the time that my first child was born, so 2014 or so. I've been in healthcare for about four years and there was an opportunity to work for a small company, well, medium-sized company called Cornerstone Healthcare Group out of, based out of Dallas. And they had uh, 18 facilities across six states and uh, healthcare facilities. And we, uh, so I went to work at that office as their CI person, uh, kind of at the national level. And uh, through some of the work that I was doing there, I got to be really um, close partners with uh, one of our operational VPs. And he had a vacancy in a hospital CEO position in Sulphur, Louisiana, um, mm. which is right next to Lake Charles, Louisiana, which just got hit with another hurricane last oh, night. Gosh, right. After a month ago getting hit with one pretty bad. But so shout out to my amazing Cajun friends in uh, Southwest Louisiana. Yeah. And uh, it was a hospital that was uh, struggling. There was a lot of changes in Medicare reimbursement policy that was going to affect specialty hospitals like this one. And so we didn't know what the future was going to hold, but it was going to be a stretched role for me to just get some experience. So I went down there thinking I was going to be down there for two months, ended up being there for two years. <laughs> uh, but the good news is, is we, uh, we turned it around. We used a lot of the improvement science techniques that we use uh, in our work to uh, drive the business growth. And it was a, it was a nice learning journey, very intense, made met a lot of great friends, um, and kind of helped me, you know, getting out of my comfort zone and into the learning zone for two solid years, like intensely, mm-hmm. I think, uh, cleared my mind as to what I wanted to do going forward. So it was very valuable from a learning perspective. Yeah. So then you had the opportunity, um, you know, as I mentioned, you're now at Kaiser Permanente, um, you know, Oakland, East Bay area. We see for those watching the video, we see, uh, you know, San Francisco as the, the virtual backdrop behind you. So what was it like then going from, you know, that direct hospital leadership role, stepping back then into um, the, the process improvement function or, you know, and, and, and how is that framed at Kaiser Permanente? There's always different language um, that organizations use. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing recently there, or at least when you got into that role, we'll get to the more recent. Uh, yes, sure. Yeah, so being in that in Louisiana in that hospital CEO role um, with all of the operational responsibility, I, I did realize that uh, I didn't really care about the job titles or, or that, that that stuff wasn't important to me. Um, and uh, I came into contact with a guy named Lawrence Hamilton at Kaiser Permanente East Bay at the time, and 
you know, we, we had some nice conversations, but I was so focused on the project in Louisiana that I wasn't really interested in making a move across the country. But then when I met him and got to know him better and some of the team and, and the culture in the East Bay, which is like the Oakland kind of flagship area where mm-hmm. Kaiser Permanente originally started, I just fell in love with the with the diversity of it and the, you know, uh, the willingness to uh, continually change and improve. It's a very progressive kind of culture. And so um, we, we, you know, took a risk moved across the country and went in, back into a uh, kind of prominently PI role, which we, in the, in the East Bay, we call it our patient care improvement system, PCIS. Uh, Cause we never have any, you know, can't have a shortage of acronyms. So, you know, mm-hmm. more the merrier, I guess. <laughs> I just like to think of it as the East Bay way, you know, sure. it's just our, our use of improvement science to improve the care that we deliver and, and add joy and meaning to the, the work that we do. And um, so I've been there about two and a half years now and uh, starting to, um, I came in fairly early in our, in our lean journey. I was, it was about maybe three, year three when I came in mm-hmm. so now we're coming up on like year six. So fairly new, fairly early on in the journey. And, uh, but, uh, it, it really it's paid off the investment that we put in when we started getting into 2020 and a lot of the challenges that we faced. So we were, we were more prepared than we would have been otherwise because of our investment in our people, investment in our mindset, skill set, and tool set around improvement science. Yeah, and we'll talk more about um, 2020 and, and what you've been doing, what you've been continuing uh, to learn. Um, you, you talk about improvement science. Um, and you know, in my experience, that's a phrase that I've really only heard in healthcare. Would, would, you, would you agree with, with that observation? Yeah, yeah. I've only really started working it into my lexicon maybe in the last six months or a year or something like that. So yeah, I, I wouldn't know the origins of it, but it seems like it's pretty, pretty uh, common now in the, over the last year in healthcare. Yeah. And, and I think the Institute for Healthcare Improvement has been using that phrase um, as, as a bit of a catch-all and, and they have certain methodology, but like, you know, there are different flavors of, you know, improvement styles and, and different language and, you know, at, at its core, a lot of it is very much the same. But when I think, and I love that phrase, improvement mm-hmm. science, um, we, you know, we talk about scientific problem solving, scientific thinking. So one of those methodologies and frameworks instead of language I know is really important to you, Michael, is the Toyota Kata approach. And um, I'll link to a webinar that you did um, with, with me for Kinexus um, mm-hmm. a few years ago about Kata. But why, well, you know, uh, from your perspective, why is that Toyota Kata framework and thought process so important to you? Yeah, um, I think it has to do with just, um, you know, the fact that when I got into the kind of the CI continuous improvement world, I didn't have a strong background in, you know, I'm not an engineer, uh, you know, statistician, none none of the things that would have prepared you. So I I was always on this like, you know, learning journey and something about the, you know, using every step, you know, into the next PDSA cycle as a, which is kind of integral to the Kata approach really appealed to me. So when, when I was, I think it was in 2014. Yeah. Or maybe 2012 where I um, read the the Toyota Kata book by Mike Rother, who's Mm -hmm. a good friend and mentor of mine. I read it for like the third time and first two times I, I, it resonated, but I didn't know what to do with it. And the third mm-hmm. time I happened to be at a hospital that was looking to really develop its leadership team to be the, the leaders of continuous improvement, working with the frontline staff and not a central PI team, which that resonated with me. Mm-hmm. I said, well, this is a way, you know, we can really start to get some practice at coaching and running experiments and stuff like that. And so uh, I think we, we set up a, a kind of a, what do you call it, like an advanced team take, you know, half a dozen to 10 people, you're all kind of learning together and you start doing a daily coaching cycles together and uh, just getting a lot of practice. And at one point, I think I was tracking it on a, on a run chart and I was doing like uh, probably like up to eight coaching cycles a day, mm-hmm. like four hours a day of coaching basically. And um, I did that, held up that pace for maybe six months and then kind of went to a more sustainable uh 
pattern after that, but uh, it was, it was intense, got a lot of practice and I realized, oh, this isn't really just a way to do process improvement. It's actually a way to invest in your mindset and your skill set. And when you start to do that, you start to form some new reflexes, like things that were more required, more kind of like deliberate thought start to become more instinctual. And that's when I realized it's just kind of a way to nurture your leadership style and your mm-hmm leadership skills. And that really paid off when I went into that hospital CEO role and, you know, where you're, you're, you're starting uh, with just your leadership style before you're adding on any layers of PI complexity. You're just starting off with just here I am, here's how I think, and let's see if we can start to improve. And when you do that, you know, the way you do it, the, the little nuances of how you do it can make a big difference. So it's nice to be able to have something to fall back on. And what I fall back on is that kind of uh, structured sense-making or scientific thinking and that coaching style. That's, that's my kind of go-to if I am uncertain, I'm not sure if if I'm fitting in or if I'm being effective or not, I just kind of go back to the fundamentals. And I think that's probably, you know, I think there was something in the Toyota Kata book that actually said that one interpretation of the Japanese, I think it's Japanese word Kata is, um, is a, balance like a way to find balance Mm. or something like that it's it's also sometimes described as like a routine right yeah a routine for uh kind of maintaining balance kind of like the fundamentals uh so yeah that kind of resonated with me and uh has become kind of part of my personal practice as a leader yeah so, you know, um, and look, I'm not an expert on Toyota Kata. I'm maybe a little conversational in it. But, you know, I'm curious when you were in that direct leadership role and you're, you're running an organization, you're developing other leaders. Is there an opportunity when you talk about defining the challenge mm-hmm. to define the challenge differently, um, maybe at you know, a higher level, looking at organizational challenge as opposed to process improvement challenge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. The if you look at the um, the Kata model, the first step of it is to understand the direction or challenge. Yeah, and <clears throat> there's like if you're going in like I was in Louisiana, where there's no kind of uh, you know um, experience and muscle memory with much PI work at all or any of the improvement science methods then, you know, you might use a very simple version of understanding the direction of challenge. You might, you might just say, you know, uh, wouldn't it be awesome if, and see kind of what would, what would the ideal condition be for whatever it is we're working on? And you work back from that. That's a very, like a starter version of, of doing, you know, strategic visioning. Mm -hmm. Then if you maybe get comfortable with that technique and maybe you want to add a little bit more of a technique there, you start to get into things like, um, you know, value stream mapping, for example, which Mike Rother, who wrote the Toyota Kata book, also co-authored the learning to see uh, instructional uh, guide on how to do value stream mapping. And uh, so, you know, viewing that future state value stream as a big challenge, like how are we going to how are we going to actually operate according to that future state map? There's a lot of uh, things we're going to have to learn in order to achieve our future state. And that's a challenge It may fit into that six to 12 months timeframe, often it's measurable. We're going to know what our value stream indicators are that are going to say we're, we're achieving our future state. And that could provide clarity of direction. You know, um, in, in our, where I'm at right now in the East Bay, we use that awesome, what is awesome kind of technique quite a bit. And we're starting to get a little bit more mature in um, understanding breakthrough objective. If you want to use kind of the, the Hoshin style, um, what are your, you know, two, three kind of critical breakthrough objectives for the year. And that fits nicely, you know, into that uh, understand the direction of challenge part of the improvement kata. Yeah. And so, yeah, boy, the word challenge is a word that um, has come up a lot in 2020. The, the year mm-hmm. is throwing a lot of challenges at us, um, the pandemic and, and, and additionally, so, and, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more here, challenge on top of challenge. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting, the approach that you've chosen to take here for the AME um, conference event, you know, again, that virtual conference in your session on October 28th. Um, so, you know, I want to talk about what 
you've been experiencing and what Kaiser and what your community there has been experiencing in, in 2020. Um, but, you know, the title for the session to share that with people is Striving Together in a Crisis, How Improvement Science Can Build Resiliency in a Crisis and Perhaps Even Progress Complex Social Issues. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll sort of unpack, you know, who, who else you've invited to be part of this session and, and the format and everything. But maybe let, let's talk first about uh, the challenges here in 2020. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, first of all, just acknowledging that everybody literally, I mean, across the globe, you know, dealing with a lot of these same challenges. And so there's nothing unique about my experience there, except working specifically in healthcare, there's a little nuance there. And then, you know, the compounding that with what's going on on the West Coast with natural disasters, wildfires, and um, a lot of uh, social uh, issues as well. So yeah, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, so it actually goes back to pre-pandemic time. So around September of 2019, um, we were, you know, at KP, we were, you know, achieving tremendous results and continuing to march forward. But we uh, we had some uh, negotiations. We, we needed to negotiate our contract with our, our labor unions, um, our valued labor partners. Our contract was set to expire. And so there was a potential of a, of a very large labor strike like the largest labor strike in the history of the healthcare industry. And um, uh, our, my team, the, our, our central PI team in the East Bay was tasked with uh, organizing our preparation efforts in case there was, we call it our contingency planning, in case there was a strike. And uh, so that began like this 12-month journey of kind of one crisis to the next. We, I think it was later in that year, we lost our iconic CEO, Bernard Tyson, Right. Uh, an amazing leader who had really done some innovative things in healthcare to promote, uh, you know, e equity and of outcomes across the, the spectrum of different types of social economic uh, issues. And so uh, it was a real loss um, to the organization. And then right on the heels of that, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And again, we were uh, asked to bring all of the tools and techniques that we know from improvement science to bear, i.e., hey, you know, we need to set up a uh, drive up uh, uh, clinic where folks can get their uh, nasal pharyngeal uh, swabbing done for COVID tests. And normally that would be something that would take place over like a year. <laughs> and we did it in 24 hours. So it was like a ultra form of, um, of rapid cycle testing. Yeah. And but we did it with quality, with compliance, with safety, we all the things that we hold near and dear to our heart. We weren't willing to sacrifice on that, but we had to be fast. And that's just one example. There's you know, we had to do a bunch of transformative things like that, you know, doubling the capacity of our ICU, you know, over the course of a week, um, converting over. We have a massive primary care footprint. Um, we've got almost 400,000 members in the East Bay alone, and we provide their primary care and specialty care. And we switched over from our predominant delivery mechanism being in-person care to virtual care, so video and phone and secure messaging um, over the course of a weekend. Right. We're talking about, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of visits. And so, uh, yeah, so that's kind of what the last seven months has been, uh, or the last year, really, if you go back to the labor contingency planning. And then just to kind of exacerbate things uh, on the West Coast, as you know, Mark, uh, you know, we've had, uh, I don't know what, four of the five largest wildfires in the history of California over the last couple of months, some of them within about an hour of the East Bay. And then uh, one thing that I loved about the East Bay, uh, and one of the reasons why I come here was because of the diversity of the Oakland area and the Berkeley area and the progressive thought. And, um, and by the way, I'm not political. So I'm not, when I say progressive, I'm not talking about political. I'm talking about just advancing ideas. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, we've definitely shown our voice in terms of our being dissatisfied with uh, any kind of systemic inequality. And uh, there's no shame and blame game. I don't do that. Uh, I'm just talking about, just like with my PI hat on, looking at when we have systems issues, 
let's, you know, have respect for people and let's get to the root cause and, uh, and see what improvement we can make. So, yeah. you know, it's all happened simultaneously in parallel. Um, but yeah, we're hanging in there and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit at the, uh, at, at our, uh, our joint AME keynote that we're going to do together. Yeah. So, um, tell, tell us, um, about two of the physicians, um, that, that you've worked with and that you've invited to be part of the session, uh, Rita Ng and Carlo Wicks. Tell, tell me a little bit about them and, and why, um, you, you've got them involved in the session. Yeah. I mean, a big smile comes on my face whenever I, I think about, these docs and it's really, they, they represent, we, we have about a thousand docs in the East Bay and they're just some of the most incredible people I've ever met. It's just a, an honor to work with them. My, my partner for our PI program in the East Bay is named Dr. Raj Ranga. He's another one that's just incredible. Um, but there's so many, too many to name, but I'll just talk about a little bit about Rita and Carla. So uh, Rita is our, uh, one of our two uh, physicians in chief for the East Bay. So she's a cardiologist and uh, she's a, uh, I think she was the first ever Asian American Miss California, yeah. uh, amazing piano player. Um, and she and I are the uh, like right around the same age and our kids are right around the same age. And she actually came into her physician in chief role the same exact month that I came in to join the East Bay. Mm. And uh, so she was new to that executive level of leadership and I was brand new to California and to Kaiser Permanente. And so we've uh, kind of committed that we'll be, uh, you know, partners in our, in our journey. And uh, she's really helped me. And along with some of our other leaders that I mentioned before, Lawrence Hamilton and others uh, really helped me. I always joke because she's a cardiologist. I say, you're teaching me how to lead from the heart. And uh, just one of my corny dad jokes or whatever, but, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, We'll talk about this during the, the, the AME with her, but, you know, uh, she's really helping me understand how to be vulnerable, how to uh, be transparent about this is how we're feeling and it's okay. And that's just really never was my style. I was always more of just like, let's just get to the, you know, problem solving and, you know, let's leave emotion at the door and that from kind the of head. thing. Yeah. What's that? From, from the head. Yeah, exactly. The brain, the the logical, rational, right? Yeah. And like the whole, my whole practice of kata is about, you know, rigorous sense making and trying to use the, you know, the thinking, the intellectual part of your brain more than the emotional part of your brain. And uh, anyway, uh, I was making some false, uh, you know, conclusions there that you can't leave from the heart and use your brain. (laughs) Right. And that's been, you know, humbling and learn a good learning journey for me. And, uh, and that'll come through, I think, when we uh, have Rita participate in the AME event. Yeah. And then... Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. And then Carla, um, I don't know, but I guess it was about two years ago or so, uh, she and I were talking about how we can incorporate the coaching kata into our um, physician practice. And I was like, yeah, I have all these wacky ideas. Like maybe we could... Uh, you know, uh, coach our physicians on how, on their, how they engage with the patients or whatever. And then she's like, Oh, way ahead of you. And she shared the story of, she had started coaching one of her, she's an OBGYN doc, by the way. And, uh, she started sharing a story of when she had started using the coaching kata with one of her pregnant patients who was dealing with some psychosocial issues that was actually threatening her pregnancy. Mm. And, um, and she has some really great results engaging with her patient using that structured sense-making approach of the, of the kata. And uh, so I said, we got to get this down on video. We just did a quick iPhone video with one take mm-hmm. and uploaded it. And I shared it at the kata summit and, and she just became kind of my idol after that. And then she was working with us in the East Bay. And then uh, I was bummed cause she got this, well, I was happy for her, but she got this promotion to our regional offices uh, of KP. So, um, you know, Permanente Medical Group, largest uh, medical group in the country, I believe, multidisciplinary medical group. And uh, so she's now the regional lead for uh, equity, inclusion, and diversity and and reducing disparities in outcome um, for this large medical group. And I said, with with her coaching skill um, and her amazing, uh, you know, compassion and, and she's such a kind person. I said, I can't think of anybody better to coach me as I 
became interested in this topic of can we apply the rigorous sense making and scientific thinking and PI, you know, to these thorny social issues of whether it's, you know, violence or uh, inequality or just any of the forms of, of, of waste that we have in our society that may do, be due to systemic issues. Yeah. And so, um, you know, how would, how would you respond? Um, I mean, this is not me directly challenging you on this, but I, I know there might be some who think, well, look, it's the AME conference and we normally talk about things that are really core lean business issues as maybe traditionally defined in the lean space. Um, why, why bring this topic um, forward, you know, talking about um, important issues of um, equity, diversity, inclusion, social justice, um, why, you know, uh, why, why, why bring that to, uh, the conference? I think, uh, I think I'll answer that in two parts. One is the unique moment that we're in. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, we're literally in uncharted territory. Um, and I've been a lot of my assumptions about society and life and just survival have been challenged over the last seven months in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm in the headspace where I'm willing to be humble and, and think about, um, uh, you know, uh, what the future may hold and new ways of doing things. And I'm, I'm, I'm suspecting that um, some folks out there in the improvement science community in the CI world maybe are also reexamining aspects of, of their life and society. That's one. And then secondly, it's just a natural logical leap, I think. My, my hypothesis is that it's natural if you encounter systemic issues in a business where the business is losing money uh, or their quality is poor, you don't go and you know attack the person, you attack the process, you, you get to the root cause, you test your ideas, you use improvement science to improve the systemic issues. And to me, it's a natural leap to then if I encounter systemic issues uh, in other arenas, whether it's uh, a person's health, because we are, our body is a system, uh, whether it's our family's um, wellness, families are our systems of, of humans, uh, or or if it's our justice system or whatever it may be. Uh, I'm just, all I'm doing is keeping that PI hat on and staying in the rational and staying in the in the structured sense-making mindset, or at least I'm trying to. Right. I'm not that great at it. Uh, I'll be honest, I I just like anybody probably succumb to uh, fear and uh, I don't want to be accused of being a racist or anything like that because I don't believe I am. And so those things trigger me and I battle with that, but I'm trying to get better at it. And uh, all I can do is just uh, is uh, be willing to go out on a limb yeah. at the AME conference. I don't think that's too much to ask of, of me given all the, yeah. the positives that are, that I've been given in, in my life through improvement science. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, as I've explored and well, you talk about this being uncharted territory. Um, I'm having a lot of conversations with people privately and publicly that I frankly was not uh, a part of before this year, part of sort of just taking inventory of, uh, life and, and the role we play in trying to, you know, create an improved system, if you will. So like, you know, society as a system uh, is, is a system and, and it's, it's a heavy lift, but, you know, if we can do something that makes a positive contribution, uh, you know, baby steps um, can be helpful. I think hopefully it doesn't just feel good, but hopefully it's, uh, it's helpful. Um, but, you know, when we talk about systems, like to me, I think there's a parallel. If we look at um, a healthcare system, again, speaking very generally, I'm not, pointing this at, at Kaiser Permanente, but this is just, you know, general healthcare or, um, um, observation is that there are very systemic problems in healthcare that lead to bad outcomes, um, harm to patients, and sometimes death. And I think healthcare, for the most part, has gotten better at looking at systemic causes and systemic drivers of actions and behaviors and, and even attitudes that can lead to problems in healthcare. Now we can have a bad system that's full of very good, hardworking, well-intended individuals. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, some of the pushback that I've gotten 
on bringing some of these conversations forward through my blog or through my podcast. I had somebody emailed, um, paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me. You know, I can tell you he was, he was upset. And he, and he said, you know, I'm tired of all this talk of systemic racism telling us that we're all racist. And I'm like, well, I don't think that's what systemic racism is describing. And I don't think any of my guests have said that. And, and that's the thing I think is interesting to try to think through. Uh, you know, systemic racism does not mean everybody in that system is a racist, but yet there are still bad practices and certainly bad or inequitable outcomes. Um, I know I kind of threw a lot out there, but kind of curious to hear your reactions on thinking about, you know, systems and systemic drivers. We can have bad systems with a lot of good people. Yeah. System. Yeah. Uh, first, I'll just say I don't make any assumptions about anybody's um, what's going on inside of their heart and their head. Mm-hmm. I don't accuse anybody of, of of racism, and I don't think that that's helpful when we when we when we trigger people in that way, make them feel like they're being accused. And uh, so I'll start with that. But I'll share an example. Uh, so kind of an, by way of analogy, I guess, or similar experience. So when I was uh, in that hospital CEO role in Louisiana, you know, we were doing a quick turnaround and um, we weren't always, you know, I wasn't always following the you know, the lean playbook to the letter of the law, you know, I wasn't always, we were it's, putting it's in, law. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean though? Like yeah. we, we were, you know, I was in this operational leadership role and some of my, uh, you know, we wouldn't always document every, every standard work and, and, uh, and really um, we were kind of operating in a really fast pace and sometimes I would develop some bad habits and we had folks uh, from our quality corporate office come in and say, Michael, you know, uh, you're not doing the right, the best practice. You're not following best practice for documenting standard work, et cetera. And here I am, you know, uh, supposedly, you know, kind of a advocate for these lean kind of PI principles. And I'm not, so I felt like they were coming in and I'm like, just, you know, go away, you know, just kind of like uh, leave me alone. I don't want to be accused of these things. And I was very in kind of a emotional state about things. And then, when I had some distance from it, and I was able to look back and I was like, yeah, I was actually, um, you know, they, what they were saying was actually correct. And I was just being a little bit emotional about it. And, but that feeling is valid though. When you are doing something that you feel is, is right. You know, we were trying to keep this hospital open and we were having success and, you know, you feel like you're doing things the right way. You're not, you don't harbor any hate in your heart. You're not doing anything uh, that's wrong right. and you've got people, you know, you're hearing it, these criticisms or whatever. And now that's a very, you know, kind of more innocuous example of being criticized. But, but, but that reaction that, that happens um, is, I, you know, that defensiveness or an emotional reaction is that that is a natural and expected human response. Totally. Yeah. We have to have respect for people and say, that's, you know, that's part of our hardware, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, but the whatever the limbic system or whatever drives the neurochemicals that can, like trigger stress or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, they're real. And uh, we have to um, be cognizant of that and respect it. And uh, it's, it's our survival instinct. So we need to appreciate it and be gentle and and be coaches um, and help help us get out of that limbic system and into the more you know, thinking part of our brain and uh, let's see if we can learn, you know, something from it, you know, but if you're in, if you're in that accusatory kind of feeling like you're being accused headspace, that's totally natural. And, you know, we should try to, uh, as a team, as a, you know, as a human race, we should try to kind of uh, get past that because there's things that you never know or what you're going to find if you start, you know, poking around these topics that maybe, we don't have a lot of, maybe we're not used to talking about social issues. Maybe it's not part of our muscle memory. Maybe it's not a skill set that we have and we don't feel comfortable doing it, but you never know what you might uncover uh, that can make things better for your employees, for your family, for your society. Who knows? I don't know. I certainly don't know. This is all just a hypothesis, Yeah, but it's something that I'm willing to uh, explore. And, and I appreciate how, and it, you know, I, I feel, you know, the same way in some of these conversations, I appreciate how you're framing it as not 
having all the answers or being an expert, I, I think, you know, the, the, the lean philosophy and the, the Kata framework is, is about, um, you know, getting to the frontier of our mm-hmm. knowledge or maybe getting to the frontier of our comfort level. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe, um, I, you know, strongly the idea of, you know, that learning comes from discomfort, mm-hmm. that being uncomfortable is a, a, an expected part of a learning process. Now, when I work out, I hear my earbuds, you know, the, the virtual trainer says like, if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, you're not, <laughs> yeah. you hear this in different contexts. But um, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, there's, um, these are topics that are on the forefront. You know, like to me, I think it's absolutely fair game um, to, to talk about this in podcasts and conferences because we're applying what we know from different realms of problem solving to, yeah. to bigger, um, in, you know, really important, really important problems. So I, I appreciate you willing, your, your willingness to, to come out and say, look, I'm not an expert, but let's think through this. Let's learn together. Let's, let's have a conversation. And so, you know, I wanted to also kind of come to the format that you chose. Um, you're not standing up there giving a virtual PowerPoint presentation, but you'll probably be sitting when you're doing it. But um, why, why the format and sort of talk about the format and what you've helped structure. Sure. Um, well, actually, building on what you just said around getting it out of that comfort zone and into that kind of learning zone, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to do that with the format. I wanted to try something that was. I've done a lot of the, you know, standard keynotes where you deliver your your slides, and uh, they're really fun. Um, but I wanted. To, I didn't want to do something that was fun. I wanted to do something that was going to challenge me, uh, and it certainly has. Like, you know, we're talking. Our format is going to include um, you and I discussing things. Uh, kind of like a podcast format. It's going to include some uh, some video clips with uh, Dr. You know, Rita Ng and Carla Wicks. And it's going to include some Q&A with Rita and Carla at the end as well. And it's a little bit challenging to kind of, I found out that I am not a, uh, despite the fact that I do have a, uh, a, a t-shirt that says UCLA Film School, I am not meant to be a film producer. <laughs> it is hard. It is really difficult. I'm learning, but it's, it's you know, it's a challenge. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to do that because I think that it provides, uh, more perspectives. We get uh, four of us talking about it instead of just my perspective. And it also, uh, there's, you know, the real work is not at the conference. It's, you know, it's in our heads and it's forever. And so it's really forced me to really think more, uh, deliberately about the leading from the heart concept and the systemic issues has made me uh, start to tighten up my thinking on these topics because I've um, deliberately engaged with folks like Rita and Carla and yourself. And we're going through a lot of rapid discussion. It's kind of like, you know, rapid cycle testing on this topic and just saying, am I on solid ground here logically? Am I thinking straight and having coaches like y'all really helps in that real quick. I want to also in that same vein of, comfort zone and, and struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a quick shout out um, to uh, Professor Jim Stigler and team down at UCLA. Um, I had a chance to go do some coaching with them uh, this past December, and they're doing amazing things around applying improvement science to learning, like learning systems, how to make learning easier. And they do a lot of A-B testing of different ways of presenting material. And it's just phenomenal. Um, but uh, if the audience wants to Google uh, Jim Stigler, UCLA, YouTube video. There's a video where he talks about his learning model and he specifically calls out that with no struggle, there's no learning, like Mm -hmm. kind of debunks the idea of, uh, you know, learning is fun. Well, yeah, it's fun when you achieve the learning and then you get that, that, that satisfaction of, of mastery um, of some of a topic, but along the way, it should be a struggle. And that's uh, the, the, I think that's, one of the most profound things that I've learned uh, over the last couple of years is just the value of the struggle and how it actually has the knock on effect of creating resiliency, mental resiliency and a kind of a self-efficacy that, you know, we don't know the answers, but sometimes when we're confronted with a big problem, we don't know the answers, but we have the, the, the mindset and the kind of the ruggedness to get there. And, uh, that's really paid off, I think, over the last seven months for for practitioners of improvement science as they're dealing with some of these 
societal challenges and pandemic. Yeah. So, so one other question comes to mind and again, you know, I'm just throwing that out for conversation. It's not an easy question to answer, but you know, I mentioned earlier um, incremental improvement. And, and one thing I've been more mindful of is the need, like what the, the need for incremental improvement versus breakthrough improvement to frame it that way. Um, you know, when we look at, at issues involving um, inequity, injustice, um, systemic racism, I am not really, I am not affected by those things on a day-to-day basis as a white man. Um, so I, you know, one thing I've tried to be more cognizant of, and I've had, you know, conversations with some black colleagues about this is, you know, if I, 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 I might say incremental improvement is fine. But the reality is other people who are affected uh, by these issues um, and, and, and sometimes on a daily basis might not be in a comfort zone of being uh, of, of, of looking for incremental improvement. They say, hey, uh, you know, people are dying. Um, people's lives are being affected. We need breakthrough improvement now. Um, so I as kind of a, a thought more so than a question, but you know I'm I'm curious if you, if you have talked through even within the organization, um, how do we strike the balance and, and understand when incremental improvement is okay and when breakthrough improvement is necessary or possible? Yeah, um, I think that's kind of our reflex where I'm at in the East Bay is to we see the overall challenge, but we focus on what is the next target condition. And then narrowing down even further, what's the next obstacle on the way to that target condition? And then what are we going to do to try to remove that obstacle? So we, we try to funnel it down to the very smallest next step that produces learning. Mm-hmm. And that's our kind of way of uh, um, kind of probing reality a little bit because we acknowledge, you know, we, we, we try to develop this uh, recognition of when we hit our knowledge threshold and, uh, and realize that we don't see reality uh, the way it actually is all the time because we have all of our cognitive biases, right? We, we, we can't escape them, but we can start to recognize them. And, um, and so when we do that, we start to put, we, we increase the, val- our, the value that we place on small learning experiments mm-hmm. um, because we see that they accumulate and they, they add up and they start stacking up our, our skill set starts stacking up, our knowledge base starts snack, stacking up. And uh, even if it's taking us a little longer to get to that outcome that we're looking for, uh, we're accumulating all of this. Uh, it's kind of like the difference between kinetic energy and uh, potential energy, and, you know, going to, uh, you know, 12th grade physics or whatever. <laughs> um, we're, we're, we're stacking up that, that, uh, that stored energy and we're getting ready to, to be able to apply it in ways that we wouldn't have if we would have gotten a good outcome and then moved on. And so just, we've always talked about, you know, improvement as a continuous journey, continuous improvement, Kaizen. And, uh, and now we're, as we pull in other fields of science, you know, I just referenced physics, there's mm-hmm. science around uh, what is reality. Uh, another shout out, Donald Hoffman at UC Irvine is a great, if you want to watch some of his YouTube videos, uh, just challenging our perception of what is going on with a problem, acknowledging when we've met our knowledge threshold, and then taking what is the, the smallest next little exploration that we can do to start stacking up some learning. That's a, that's a different mind. That's a, a robust mindset. You can do that anywhere at any time. You don't need a big, big conglomerate of a team. You don't need, you know, you, you just need to know who, who can you go talk to and get more information right now and start to learn it. What can you go observe, go to the Gimba and look at a process? Um, and you can apply that because like what is what in in, our, in the natural world is not dependent on a process. I mean, there's biological processes, there's chemical process, everything is processes. So processes can be, you know, we can probe them, we can examine them, we can learn from them. And if we have the right tools and skills and mindset. So, um, yeah, and I'm fortunate in healthcare that, you know, I have an avenue to uh, address some of the issues around disparities and outcomes. When you work for an integrated care delivery system, the way I do, we've got all the right players at the table. We've got the, the insurance company, the docs, the hospitals, the clinics, everybody's all in one company with KP. So we're able to 
uh, we don't, you know, I can, I don't have to focus on the, the huge, large, enormous issues that society is dealing with. Uh, you know, I have opportunity to kind of narrow in and focus on how can we, for example, reduce uh, poor outcomes related to hypertension within the African-American community. That's something that we're actively working on right now in the East Bay. And we're doing it. I just had a coaching cycle yesterday with the leads for that, this program that we're doing. It's an innovative program that was developed in a very humble, small way. We said it's called House Calls. And uh, it's a way to do kind of outreach to a bulk number of people at once through webinars and such. And we said, let's just start with an MVP, a minimum viable product, very humble goal. Let's just get a, a version of a webinar that we can deliver, that we can then collect data from and learn from and make it better. Mm-hmm. And so we're borrowing from Silicon Valley and Lean Startup and Eric Reese um, to do that. And that's, it's nice to have that avenue because you can't, you can't deal with it all at once. So you have your lane that you can really make a difference in and, and see if some of the learnings from that lane can be ported over into, you know, legal issues or criminal justice or, um, all the other lanes that I'm really not that knowledgeable on, but I'm trying to be more knowledgeable about. Yeah. So yeah, that, 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 that spirit of learning and um, increasing our knowledge is uh, coming through in what you say. And I know that'll come through um, from you and Dr. Ang and Dr. Wicks in uh, the AME session. So I'm looking forward to that. Thank you for inviting me to, uh, to help moderate that and play some role um, in, yeah. in the session. If I could just say, you know, it's a real uh, honor and treat to have you uh, facilitate that panel for us, Mark. Um, and I really appreciate the learning journey that you're on and some of the things you're doing with uh, DeAndre Wardell and others with hashtag root cause racism. It's inspiring and it really inspired me on this topic. And so thank you. Well, thanks. And yeah, thanks go to DeAndre and others who have been uh, working with and talking to and learning from. Um, and, and yeah, that's um, happy to be um, a part of that. So again, you know, today we've been joined by Michael Lombard. He's going to be one of the keynote speakers. Man, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I'm going to say, <laughs> look at Michael up there. Uh, I'm sorry that, you know, we're doing the virtual format this year. It would have been great to to be up on a physical stage with you in Toronto, but we adapt, right? So um, AME is doing the virtual conference this year, October 27th to 29th. I'll put a registration link uh, for that in um, the show notes. And again, uh, Michael's session uh, is Wednesday, October 28th. And again, by calling it Michael's session, it's Michael as um, kind of the facilitator and organizer of the session that includes Dr. Rita Ng, Dr. Carla Wicks from Kaiser Permanente. Um, so Michael, thank you for doing that. Thank you for uh, being a guest, uh, boy, first time guest on the podcast. We'll we'll have you back and, and talk about other things, and maybe we'll do another session, kind of recap lessons learned and how that session goes. That would be lovely. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.